last week on the Sonic Truth Dynasty podcast. We start the show late. Audio every engineering week. fault. Whose fault is this? <laughs> you you took a shit last week, and that's why we were late. And I have Jeff Janis ranked ahead of Kevin White in Dynasty. And there's nothing you can say about pretty. It's just plain. Wait, so she just plain. called her plain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Two on one. <laughs> and end of time. Brandon Cooks will continue to be an intrinsically better player than Kevin White. Draft capital be damned. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Field Goals Sonic Truth Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Liss. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And with me, as always, is Mr. Matt Kelly. You can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore mansion. What's going on, Matt? Apparently, I'm a fraud. A fraud? That's right. My family believes that I am a fraud. Hmm. Why is that? I'm a cheater. I'm a fraud. Today, my daughter created a game for my wife and I to play with her around the house. She has these little princess cupcakes, and there are different themes. One's an Ariel theme. One is Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Cinderella, of course. Sleeping Beauty, of course. Snow White. All these different themed cupcakes. Is it this game, Matt? Whoa, it's that exact game! I have the same problem. Go on. <laughs> We did not talk about this before the show. Uh, I have cupcakes all over my recording studio. Look at this. I got a handful of them right now. Cupcakes everywhere. Just to take the audience behind the scenes for a moment, I like to start the show with a curveball. Nate has this beautifully laid out show sheet. He thinks he knows where the show is going to go, and I specialize in derailing the show within the first 30 seconds. That's (laughs) why I'm here. That's what Field Gulls pays me for. So I did not tell him that I was going to talk about Princess Cupcakes today and he had within arm reach a box of princess cupcake that just happened so these cupcakes are hidden around the house and our daughter gives my wife and i clues this cupcake is for a princess who's friends with seven dwarfs so then we have to go around the house looking for a snow white cupcake that is topped with an apple and then whoever brings it back first like supermarket sweep wins the cupcake, and then she gives us another clue, and so on and so on. It's a game. It's fun. So what I do inevitably during the game is I will stumble upon cupcakes that are for princesses that have yet to be called out. (laughs) And I am compelled to take that cupcake and make it harder to find, slide it into a nook or a cranny within the house so I can immediately go find it as soon as the clue is given. Gamesmanship. Well, (laughs) well, (laughs) my daughter and my wife don't view it necessarily as gamesmanship. They view it as cheating. So I was called a cheater. I had my win nullified. I had a prize. It was taken away unceremoniously, and I was ridiculed and banished, and they went off together and played another game, and I wasn't welcome. And then I also realized, wait a second, does this make me a hypocrite? Was I also caught in a hypocrisy here because I come on this show and pound the table about Dynasty League integrity? You can't take in Dynasty. You have to try to win and win the right way. How many shows have we done with that theme? Don't answer that. All right. And here I am essentially cheating against my wife to win a prize given by my daughter. Now that I've explained to you my tactics, do you believe what I was doing was unethical or is this just the normal gamesmanship that is natural when you're playing board games or family games that have no stakes? Look, man, we're we're all looking for an edge, Matt, whether it be taking supplements, whether it be, you know, uh, stealing signs, right? We're always looking for that edge. And, you know, maybe she should either A, hide them better or put out one cupcake at a time if she doesn't want 
you to come across these things preemptively. Change the rules. Try right. harder. You can do the same thing. It's not in the rule book. I read the rule book. The rule book doesn't exist. There is no rule against it. So why can't you do it? And that's what I often say to people about Dynasty Leagues. Well, if you don't like tanking, really, you can complain about it on a podcast like I do, or you can change your league rules to severely penalize tanking. For example, in my leagues, we banish the last place team. We rip the roster from the owner's cold, dead tanking hands and give <laughs> it to someone else. But my wife also relished in reminding me about all the other times that I cheated in family style games. For example, Uno. I always thought when I was growing up, Uno was a game that we played to see who could out cheat the other person. I deal off the bottom of the deck. I hide draw fours in my shoe. I am using all the tricks of the trade to try to win when there are no stakes, when it's just for fun. Trying to get away with cheating for me is part of the fun. Do you agree with that? Or are my tactics now starting to go to a place where now you're shaking your head and you're saying, OK, that's too far? <laughs> No, again, I'm with you. I think that uh, we've yes. outgrown these games. You know, like it's it's hard to retain your attention playing these types of games because they've just sort of lost their fun over time. It's fun to play with your family. It's fun to see the enjoyment with your child and stuff like that. But it's hard to stay engaged playing these games. And it's like, yeah, sometimes you got to do a few little things here and there to keep it interesting, to keep it fun. Because you know what? Even if you do get caught, it's a little fun because now they're looking for you to cheat and add something else. Today is going to be a competitive day for me because it started with these fun family princess cupcake games. And then later tonight, we have a family friend. A family friend has invited us over and he's tall. He plays basketball. Apparently you're tall. We learned on the last show that you're 6'2", which was shocking to every single member of the audience who envisioned you as a small person. Uh, I don't. I didn't know that anybody envisioned me as a small person. And I have friends that listen to the show, so it can't be everybody. They at least know how tall I am. I was inundated with emails and tweets. Oh, God. Confirming <laughs> the assumption that you were a small person. This was the breaking news of the offseason that you're actually tall. Hmm. Interesting. I, I again, I had no idea that people assumed that I was short. And I'm even more surprised that after I confessed that I was that tall, there's still people out there that, that just don't buy it. Oh, you're tall. You changed the camera angle today for the show to make yourself look taller. I noticed you did that. <laughs> That's not why I did it. I just I want to give you the full spectrum. I'm running this two microphone system. There's a lot going on. I just want the whole thing to be in the frame. So this friend of mine is tall. He plays basketball and he just installed the new hoop. But in the last year, once in a while, we'll be at school and there'll be a basketball and we'll shoot around and I'll make a bunch of threes in a row or something. And he'll be like, whoa, whoa. And now he's just installed this basketball hoop and he's excited to christen it by playing me one on one. So he's invited us to their house tonight for dinner, essentially as an elaborate event to get me on the basketball court to play him one on one. My wife said, oh, God, he plays basketball all the time. Are you sure you want to do this? And I said, don't worry, honey, he can't shoot. It's fine. And she said, oh, OK, that's fine. And I said, what does that mean? Why is it important that he's not a good player? Like, why are you looking out for me? Why don't you think I can play basketball? And she turns to me and goes, remember that one time at the JCC? <laughs> and that's all she had to say because I knew exactly what she meant. And it was like a dagger. Now, I, I have a question, Matt, because we're just assuming with one another that everybody else knows. What does JCC stand for? Jewish Community Center. OK. And that's what I thought. But I don't think anybody else knew that. <laughs> so we live in Washington, D.C. D.C., the center of the city, there was a Jewish community center, and it was by far and away the most affordable gym membership. And my wife is Jewish, so it worked out really well for her and us. Matt, can I just say I find that surprising that a Jewish-owned gym would be affordable? So I'm in the basketball court, so I'm by myself shooting, and a 14-year-old boy walks in the gym wearing a full suit. He's Hasidic. 
I believe, which means that he has the mm-hmm. wide-brimmed hat, he had the full suit, shiny shoes, and he had curly sideburns. He looked cool. Isn't there a rapper? Yeah, Modest Yahoo. Yeah, Modest Yahoo. He looked like Modest Yahoo, and I love Modest Yahoo. I've been to multiple Modest Yahoo concerts. Uh. So I went up to him and I said, hey, can I help you? And he said, are you playing? And I said, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you're right. You're a kid and <laughs> you're wearing a suit and you're not wearing basketball shoes and you have that cool hat. And he says to me, well, do you want to play? And I was like, no, come on. Really? I mean, he's like, no, seriously, I can play. I'll play in this. Oh, no. I said, oh, fine, I guess. At this point, I'm feeling a little cocky. I'm like, "Okay, he really wants to play. I'm going to have to show this guy (laughs) why you need to wear real basketball shoes when you play against Matt Kelly. Oh, man. So he takes off his dress shoes and he takes off his hat and he's playing in white socks and curly sideburns and a full <laughs> suit. He doesn't even take his jacket off. Oh, this is too much. And this is ridiculous. And I'm looking at this kid going, are you kidding me? Okay, check ball, I guess. <laughs> You're dead. You're dead. <sighs> Rainbow, three, swish. Okay, fine. I have to play up on you. Not a problem. It's not like you can get around me. He's slipping and sliding by me. <laughs> He's, he can't elevate. It doesn't matter. He's spinning it in on a reverse layup wearing socks. I can't stop this kid. And it's embarrassing. And I am sweating. I am trying so hard. I am up in his face. I am bumping him. I am taking it right to the edge of dirty play because he's killing me. It's like nine to three. You know, check ball, another hoop, point game, and I am just exhausted and embarrassed and so thankful that I was alone in the gym and no one was witnessing this basketball debacle until I looked over. And there's my wife. <laughs> arms crossed oh my god looking at me with the biggest smile on her face Uh. and at that moment he burns me in white socks and (laughs) scores a layup and i slam the ball on the ground and i just walked away i didn't (laughs) shake his hand i wanted nothing to do with this kid he was a hustler there was no stakes but he was a hustler he could have taken me for money I was walking off in shame. She was laughing at me. And I haven't played a game of one-on-one since that day. Two things off the top of my head that I'm thinking about here. Number one, if there was any video of this, it would be a YouTube phenomenon. This would be one of the greatest (laughs) clips to ever hit the internet. And secondly, if we look at the splits, Matt Kelly playing one-on-one versus Jews and not versus Jews, you already have a bad track record. So if you're going up against another Jew tonight, you've just got a history that's going to go against you tonight. You've got to break the streak. My two best Jewish friends in college both played high school basketball. I am O and 350 against the Jewish people one-on-one. Oh, man. It's surprising there's not more of us in the NBA, the the Lieberthals, the the Leibowitz, the Greenbergs. From my perspective, the Jewish people should own the sport of basketball. (laughs) Well, they probably do. We don't know that for sure. I, I don't know from what angle you're speaking. I mean, in my life experience, I've only known the Jewish people to be exceptional at basketball and impossible to stop. Jewish basketball leagues are way more brutal than you would expect. But I will say this. I played in a Mormon league. I had a bunch of Mormon friends in high school. So I went to play in a Mormon uh, church league. And it was some of the dirtiest, most physical, violent basketball I've ever been a part of. It was no mercy. So, Nate, we've received a number of tweets and emails. And by the way, contact the show at Sonic Truth Pod on Twitter or email us, sonictruthpod at gmail.com. There are a number of listeners objecting to your pronunciation of Le'Veon Bell. Say Le'Veon Bell. You want me to say it the right way or the way I've been saying it? Just say it naturally. Just read it and say it as you would normally say it now. Don't think about it. Just read it. Le'Veon Bell. <laughs> Uh, 
for some reason, the listeners were offended by your blatant mispronunciation of Le'Veon Bell's name. I found that some players inspire an unreasonable affinity among fantasy gamers. And Le'Veon Bell is one of those players where the cup runneth over with positive emotion. People love Le'Veon Bell and people love Antonio Brown. It's rare that one NFL offense would have two of the players that fantasy gamers love the most. And everyone knows I love Antonio Brown. And on the show, we've talked about the possibility of Antonio Brown breaking the record for targets and receptions in a season in 2016 because Martavis Bryant will be suspended for the year and he will be the locked in number one target hog wide receiver on a high volume offense. But the buzzards have spoken and the sentiment is slow down, temper expectations around Antonio Brown's target volume and reception totals for 2016 because you've forgotten that Le'Veon Bell commands 100 plus targets. Le'Veon Bell hurts Antonio Brown's target share. It's not just about the wide receivers in the passing game. Do you see Le'Veon Bell as a threat to Antonio Brown's targets? No, I definitely don't see Le'Veon Bell as a threat to Antonio Brown's targets. It's kind of interesting. Nice job. Nice job with the name, by the way. You did it, man. People can change. People can change. (laughs) You're enacting change all over the place. So I just want to point out the fact that I I have heard this before, and it seems funny to me because we've seen successful running backs and wide receiver ones on teams in the past. But in this particular case – To those people that are making an argument, may I please take you back in time to a year known as 2014, a year in which both Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell each played an entire season. In that particular season, Antonio Brown finished as the number one overall wide receiver in PPR leagues, and Le'Veon Bell finished as the number one overall running back in fantasy leagues. So these two guys also had career years. I mean, I realize Le'Veon Bell is only a few years into the league, but the year that he had was phenomenal. So to say that Le'Veon Bell being on the field hurts Antonio Brown, I, I totally disagree with it. They both had some of the most productive years by running backs and wide receivers in league history. Antonio Brown, 181 targets, 129 receptions, almost 1,700 yards and 13 touchdowns in 2014, even though Le'Veon Bell commanded 105 targets and caught 83 balls. Mm. And that was with Martavis Bryant seeing significant snaps in the second half of the season as well. I think Sammy Coates looks a lot like Martavis Bryant, but until we see it, we won't know it. So when the only competition is Ladarius Green, who is an unproven commodity as an every down NFL tight end, Sammy Coates, a second year player who has explosive upside field stretcher, but not polished in the short and intermediate passing game. And Marcus Whedon, a player who is polished in the short and intermediate passing game, but no one considers Marcus Whedon a threat to anyone's target share. So I believe that Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell can coexist. They can both finish as the number one players at their position, respectively, in fantasy. It's conceivable that Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, and Ben Roethlisberger all finish ranked number one at their respective positions in 2016. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. I I know to some people that might sound crazy to think that one team could produce a number one player at three different positions, and I honestly don't know when the last time that happened was. Either way, yeah, it's entirely possible. So I'm not shying away from owning Le'Veon Bell in the right spot. If Antonio Brown's healthy or he's healthy, I realize we've talked about before the idea that Le'Veon Bell has the -the off-the-field stuff. He has the 2015 injury stuff. And for you, you're not really into the ownership of Bell. Um, You're not selling him for less than what he's worth. You know, obviously you want to use him because he's going to be incredibly productive, but who knows when he screws up again. I think that's one of our biggest concerns along with the injury stuff. But Antonio Brown's as solid as it gets. We continue to talk about it. But yeah, I'm interested to see. I think this team could absolutely produce the number one positional player at three different positions in 2016. What happened to Le'Veon Bell's suspension? A reporter with a verified account posted a tweet speculating that Le'Veon Bell skipped a drug test and that a suspension was forthcoming and then nothing. Right. I don't know. I saw that too. I even retweeted it 
stirring the crap, if you will. But yeah, you never know. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So who's to say that there wasn't some information floating around it? And, you know, I, I would assume that somebody of that guy's level would have gotten it from a respected source. So maybe he was wrong in terms of that. But again, where there's smoke, there's fire. So perhaps uh, Le'Veon Bell has found himself in the wrong places, but he just hasn't been caught yet. Say the cliche one more time. I don't know what I just said. I can't even You remember. don't know the cliche that you said twice? It literally just comes out of my mouth and I'm not even thinking it. It's just, it's again, it's innate for me to just drop these. I don't know that I'm doing it. I, I don't know what I said. I love that it's innate. Yeah, right. Cliches are innate. Right. Hyphen. And the first time you said where there's smoke, there's fire, <laughs> I thought it was unintentional. But when you dropped the cliche in my head the second time, I was certain that you were just trying to bother <laughs> I don't know. I, are you thinking it was like in terms of a pun because we're related to talking about smoking marijuana more than likely? No, I just think that you're wired to speak in cliches and it's maddening. I am wired to speak in cliches. I don't know what to tell you. We're 15 or 16 episodes in and I drop five to eight per week. I just I don't know what to tell you. It's what I do. It's in my Here, soul. There's smoke. There's fire. <laughs> just a meaningless <laughs> contribution. Thank you. What I will say regarding the Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell coexistence and projection, if you want to isolate a small sample size split from 2015, Antonio Brown's production when Le'Veon Bell played, then you will come to the conclusion that Antonio Brown underproduces when Le'Veon Bell is on the field. But this is why you will hear me cite splits stats very rarely on this show because the split stats are the ultimate weapon in the confirmation bias bag of tricks in the confirmation bias arsenal. If we were weaponizing an army, the splits would be the tanks. That's how common they are. If you stake out a position and you want to go out data mining, looking for information to confirm your assertion, the first place you'll look are the split stats. Ah, yes, I was right. My assumption was correct. Player X is so much better when player Y doesn't play. Here's the problem with the split stats. They necessarily create a small sample size problem because even a full NFL season is only 16 games. And players play less than 100 snaps in each game. The best receivers receive only 10 to 15 targets per game. The full season isn't even a big enough sample size. We caution all the time about overweighting of the single season sample size. Creating snap judgments about a player after a handful of games or even a full season. It's still not enough data to ensure that you're not being fooled by randomness. And when you go out confirmation bias stat hunting and you cherry pick a split that confirms your assumption, what you're doing is you're isolating a smaller sample set within a small sample size. It's a small sample size within a small sample size. That's the problem with the splits. The splits are a confirmation bias weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> Yeah. And again, I agree on this topic. You see it all the time on Twitter. You know, most of our listeners are probably Twitter followers and people that use Twitter for fantasy football and whatever else. But you see it all the time. Guys trying to work splits to, you know, find one reason or another to like or dislike somebody or find some sort of dichotomy between two players. Yeah. And oftentimes what you are doing is just taking what was a larger sample, making it even smaller. And you're taking what was already a small sample and just making it even smaller. Right. Exactly. So now it's even smaller. So where I do believe that you can find fact and things in there, but it's really hard to stand behind it. I mean, you don't want to stand behind something that's got such tiny amount of data to support it. But a lot of people use that tiny amount of data to make points. So, you know, I, I don't use it too heavily, but I can respect sort of people digging into it and looking for little bookmarks and reasons why something is this or something is that. And we had a buzzard right in. Hey, Nate, you know, you quietly nuked your own Zach Zenner argument when you campaigned against stashing pure backups behind entrenched starters. You know that, right? Here we go. Actually, that's wrong. Um, I completely agree with the idea of betting on exciting players behind elite talents. But without rehashing this topic, Matt, Zenner is definitely not behind an elite talent. This is a fact that owners can take solace in. Amir Abdullah is going to receive every opportunity to 
establish himself as the primary ball carrier for Detroit. And if he does that, he's under contract for the next two to three years. And Theo Riddick is the third down two minute drill satellite back. So there is no path for playing time for Zach Zenner. That is the point. How elite the starter is, isn't the point. The point is, do you believe that a taxi squad roster spot should be devoted to a running back that may not see meaningful snaps for two to three years? It, again, this is a tough one with Amir Abdullah. Okay, I love... Forget Amir Abdullah no. and Zach Zenner for a second. Okay, okay. Let's All zoom right. out and have a more okay. philosophical roster construction conversation. Fair enough. Let's go back two years and think about the idea of drafting Jarek McKinnon in 2014. Right. There was too much left in the tank for Adrian Peterson. I think this was one of the lessons. Sometimes we have to see it happen to really learn. Jarek McKinnon is a very special athlete. There hasn't been as many athletes coming into the league that were as athletically gifted as Jarek McKinnon was. So there was a lot of excitement behind him. So his particular situation is a small sample, an elite athlete behind one of the greatest running backs in NFL history who still has fuel in the tank. So that was a tough one because you talked about owning him and him just becoming a burden on a taxi squad because even when AP went down, missed an entire season, came back, and McKinnon was relegated to a backup role. So it almost didn't matter. He didn't even get the split backfield role at all. So looking at Zach Zenner, similar situation with Jerk McKinnon, different types of running backs, but at least with Zenner's situation, he's not behind an elite player. I think that's the one thing I'm considering. I, I do see your point, though, that Amir Abdullah is the assumed long-term starter. They spent the capital on him, so Zenner won't leapfrog into that role. So from a 3,000-mile-away view down, I don't necessarily want to own these high upside small school prospects let's say but if for some reason a top tier college athlete that got hurt and dropped a few draft rounds ended up behind somebody like an Amir Abdullah maybe in that case I'd be interested but I think when we're talking about small school guys there's a little more of a fear of them never getting on the field I'm not even targeting Keith Marshall and he has a 126.9 100th percentile speed score because at 511 219 he ran a 43140 and he immediately slots in behind Matt Jones on the depth chart and I believe Matt Jones is the worst running back in the league who is currently labeled a primary running back but even in that case the most extreme example when you have a running back parked behind a primary back with the most tenuous of grips on the job even in Keith Marshall's case maximum upside softest possible depth chart I have a difficult time drafting running backs like Keith Marshall in my dynasty rookie drafts, knowing that if Matt Jones produces at even a replacement level in 2016, then that pushes Keith Marshall's time horizon out another year. And now I have a roster spot that I might as well light on fire for a seventh round running back. And that's why when I'm drafting a running back in the second round of a dynasty rookie draft, for example, I'm more likely to target someone like Kenyon Drake, even though Kenyon Drake doesn't have a bell cow profile in the NFL. Keith Marshall does. Keith Marshall has the size and the athleticism to be a workhorse in the NFL. So does Daniel Lasco. Daniel Lasco has an all-purpose skill set. He can win in all phases, between the tackles, outside the tackles, and in the passing game. He was adept. Everywhere a running back needs to be good, Daniel Lasco was good at Cal when he was on the field. But Daniel Lasco is behind Mark Ingram, an established top five workhorse running back in fantasy. And I might draft Daniel Lasco with the hopes that he becomes the satellite back for the New Orleans Saints, usurps C.J. Spiller. That's certainly possible. We've talked about this on previous shows, but the most likely outcome in New Orleans is that Mark Ingram simply hogs the vast majority of the running back opportunities like he did last season. And I see that happening with Matt Jones as well. In Miami, it's different because Miami has publicly stated that they do not believe that Jay Ajayi has the necessary instincts and fluidity in space to be their passing down back. They've come out and said as much. And then they drafted Kenyon Drake as the fourth running back taken in the 2016 draft. Therefore, we know Kenyon Drake will have a significant role in that passing game. He only has to be given the same passing game opportunities that Chris Thompson received when healthy last season 
to be a useful running back in fantasy leagues. So while I like Daniel Lasko more than Kenyon Drake in a vacuum, and you could argue that Keith Marshall has a much higher ceiling than Kenyon Drake in the long run, I would rather have Drake over both of those players because I do not like to light taxi squad roster slots on fire with bench running backs. Okay, let me let me just bring up one example. So we're talking about how we are not confident in Keith Marshall behind Matt Jones. And Matt Jones is, as we agree, probably one of the lower tier starting running backs in the NFL. The bottom. He represents okay. he and Jay Ajayi represent the bottom of the primary backs in the NFL. Okay. So let me ask you this question. How do you feel? And I was trying to make this example earlier. Then how do you feel about Devontae Booker behind CJ Anderson, who just signed a four-year deal with the Broncos? But I think we all agree that a healthy Devontae Booker is drafted much higher than the fourth round. So these are the guys that I'm talking about. So now you put Devontae Booker behind CJ Anderson, who ran a bit middlingly in the past. How do you feel about that guy? The problem is Keith Marshall and Daniel Lasko were seventh round picks. That could have been a mistake. I think that Daniel Lasko should have been drafted in the fourth round, but he wasn't. But we're not here to undo the mistakes of NFL player personnel. We're here to process the information that we have at our disposal and make fantasy decisions. Kenyon Drake was a third round pick. Devontae Booker was a fourth round pick. Daniel Lasko was supplanted as the starting running back at Cal in his senior season. Keith Marshall was never the starting running back at Georgia. On the other hand, Devontae Booker posted a 40.1%, 86th percentile college dominator rating at our major conference school, Utah. A phenomenal talent drafted in the fourth round, best comparable on playerprofiler.com to LaShawn McCoy. This is an apples and oranges discussion. Just like CJ Procise absolutely threatens Thomas Rawls because he was drafted in the third round, Devontae Booker threatens CJ Anderson because he was drafted in the fourth round. And furthermore, I have CJ Anderson near the bottom of my primary back rankings. CJ Anderson is a slot or two above Matt Jones and Jay Ajayi. I believe CJ Anderson is a below replacement running back in the NFL. And you can go back and look at the negative production premiums that C.J. Anderson has posted while he's been in the NFL. And you can go back to his time at Cal where he could not supplant E.C. Safili, a 185-pound scat back during C.J. Anderson's junior and senior year. He was a backup, a backup to a scat back. So looking back through time. I do not believe that C.J. Anderson deserves to be a primary ball carrier in the NFL. And I believe the Denver Broncos have assessed him as such, which is why they drafted Devontae Booker in the fourth round. That is a different dynamic than what we're seeing in Washington. The beat reporters in Washington are reporting that Washington is at least a year away from coming to Jesus on Matt Jones. That's a lost year for Keith Marshall that I would rather not burn a hole in my dynasty taxi squad. And Keith Marshall and Devontae Booker and Kenyon Drake are all in different categories in terms of where they're being drafted in your fantasy leagues. Obviously, you're taking Devontae Booker before you're taking Keith Marshall. I'm taking Devontae Booker before I'm taking Kenyon Drake. And that's even with C.J. Anderson's new contract. That I just feel like Devontae Booker fell because of his injury. So he should have gone higher. And this is the type of thing. We talk about being discerning with players' ages and, and how they'll age in the NFL and how they can produce. It's the same thing here. You have to be discerning about depth charts and how players produced in college. And just because Kevin White was drafted with the seventh pick overall and Devontae Booker was selected in the fourth round, it doesn't mean that Kevin White will be elite and Devontae Booker will be nothing. Right. Sometimes players land in positions for different reasons. Kevin White was assessed by the Chicago Bears as the seventh best player overall. Devontae Booker fell. I think it was due to injury. And I think he's one of the better running backs in this draft class. And in terms of the conversation that we're having, I just think that Devontae Booker is one of those players that I would be willing to stash because, yeah, I feel like he will pass C.J. Anderson. And I feel like he has the resume to validate that he can do that. Right. Devontae Booker represents the line of demarcation. I believe that the differential between the Devontae Booker and C.J. Anderson talent profile 
is just wide enough to make up for the fact that Devontae Booker will start off his rookie season as a backup running back to an entrenched starter. But Devontae Booker and the Denver Broncos running back depth chart situation is the only situation I can think of in the NFL where I would willingly invest a second round dynasty rookie draft pick in a player who has no chance to win the starting job during the preseason. And an important attribute on the Devontae Booker profile is his fourth round draft capital. Once you get into the fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds, I mean, I'm done drafting the uber late round picks and undrafted free agent running backs who have no chance of becoming a starter in their first year. I'm done, Nate. I'm done. You would have thought we learned our lesson overvaluing fifth rounder Jay Ajayi and fifth rounder David Cobb last year. Every year this happens, we hope traffic in these fifth, sixth, and seventh round picks. And every year they get marginalized and never ascend and burn holes in our taxi squads. Like I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with the Daniel Lascos. I'm done with the Keith Marshalls. I'm done with the Marshawn Copperches. I'm just done. Just give me Kenyon Drake and leave me alone. Get out of here with your talent. I don't care anymore. Done. Done. (laughs) And you know what's interesting about this is this is an area in which our philosophy and the UTH philosophy have converged. My understanding of the Uth philosophy is that they too do not agree with clogging your taxi squad with stash running backs. But as I say that, I'm then alerted to a trade that just recently occurred where Chad Parsons traded a first round pick in 2016, one for one for a first round pick in 2018. And that 2016 first rounder became CJ Proceis. CJ Proceis, who will play the Kenyon Drake role in 2016, but could become this year's David Johnson if Thomas Rawls is re-injured or it turns out he can't make it on the field to start the season healthy. Yeah, especially with the history of undrafted free agents, I realize what Rawls did, statistically speaking, was pretty special. But we've talked about C.J. Proceis in the past. He's a great pass catcher, incredible athleticism, feature size, six foot two twenty. So there is a potential for him to become a full time starter in this offense, especially if Thomas Rawls can't make it back by week one and Seattle gets a taste of what C.J. Proceis can do full time. There may be an opportunity where he starts to nudge Thomas Rawls for that role. So trading a 2016 first rounder, one for one for a 2018 first rounder, is the height of absurdity regardless of whether or not CJ Proceis is available at that pick. But if CJ Proceis is available that pick, it makes the trade even worse. A one-for-one lateral move for first-round picks at the cost of two seasons of lost productivity? You traded picks one-for-one, except the team that's getting the 2016 pick also gets two extra seasons of CJ Proceis productivity. I mean, that represents the absurd heights of youth chasing this tanking the now in the hopes of creating a super team two years from now what is the point at this point i mean have you ever seen that work have you ever seen someone trade players and picks now for future picks and do it over and over again and essentially monopolize all the picks in a single year and then draft all the star players from that year and create a super team of youth? Have you ever seen that actually executed in practice? No, of course not. No, I've never seen that done. Chad Parsons is chasing ghosts at this point. (laughs) I feel like he's Bobby Fischer playing chess against himself. Uh, Can I can I just say one thing on the CJ Procise topic? I I just want to say in terms of this pick, you know, him getting this 2016 pick that turns into Procise and Chad ending up with a 2018 first. Even if CJ Proceis never becomes Matt Forte, if he never becomes this three-down, pass-catching monster that can run between the tackles, do all, everything, and he only becomes, say, Shane Vereen, that's still a mega win versus anything you may get in 2018. Agree. And a lot of other dynasty analysts are also agreeing with us. Last week, we had George Kritikos on the show. Next month, we're going to have Jacob Rickroad from Rotoviz. He writes a number of articles for Rotoviz. And a number of his precepts appear in my book, The Dynasty Dominator. 
This is a Dynasty League podcast with thousands of listeners, and we're thankful for that. All of you should be going to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides and download the Dynasty Dominator. It is 120 pages of key precepts for creating a successful Dynasty League team, starting with your startup draft and every year moving forward. Tips for what players to draft and what rounds of a startup and how to accumulate talent as the years go on via rookie drafts and trades. It's only $8. And if you're listening to a Dynasty League podcast, you should be accessing the written resource that the Dynasty League podcast host spent months compiling. There are key rules of thumb and precepts and the evidence backing the rules of thumb are provided by the best of the best of the dynasty industry. Rich Rebar, Jacob Rickroad, Sean Siegel, Frank DuPont, Ryan McDowell, George Kritikos, not Chad Parsons. Sorry, we couldn't find anything. (laughs) I scoured. Listen, I used all of my resources to find dynasty content that was applicable, that illuminated strategies and tactics for building dynasty league teams that win matchups and win championships and I couldn't find anything from Chad Parsons that helped that cause, but I tried. I went to every website that provides significant dynasty content, scoured the earth. Everything you ever wanted to know about the quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end age-based productivity curve. Is zero RB a viable dynasty strategy? Should you be focused on acquiring a anchor quarterback for the long term for your dynasty team? We answer every question that's ever been posed to me about how to run a successful dynasty league team in this book. And I believe you'll get more out of this podcast if you go to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides, download and read the book. It's a fast read and it's a way to support this podcast. Well, you're not supporting Nate at all. Well, you're supporting me. (laughs) You're lining my pockets. Although $8 a guide doesn't exactly pay my mortgage. It's Uh, not a lot of money. A requirement to listen to this podcast should be going to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides and downloading that book. It's also available in the Kindle store. Just search Dynasty Dominator and you will supercharge the listening experience if you're a fan of the Sonic Truth podcast. The reason I brought up the book is because when I talk about Ty Miller or Jacob Rickroad or Rich Rebar and how they approach Dynasty Leagues, I'm reminded about the fact that across the board, the Dynasty League analysts that I listen to, 95% of them are always in win-now mode like myself. We just talked to George Kritikos last week. It shows us that the youth chaser is not the majority. They are the minority. And I feel like we're making a difference on this show because when we started the show, it seemed like the majority were out there selling 2016 picks for 2018 picks. Like that was a thing a lot of people were doing. I feel like we are affecting change on this podcast. We have ramped up the criticism of youth chasing and it has emboldened analysts like George Kritikos and Jacob Brickroad to be more critical of that approach. And so I am proud of the fact that we are shining a light on the industry and we are affecting change, Nate Liss. It's a cool thing. It is a cool thing. And uh, I'm happy to be a part of it. And uh, I do live by the same theories that we're passing on to people. And, you know, Matt, the, the more that I look around the landscape of Twitter and the Dynasty community, it feels like you and I are the only ones that are chasing down players, specifically like Julian Edelman. Do you feel like Julian Edelman in 2016 is still a guy that you're going after? Absolutely. He is the veteran WR1 in fantasy that I am most often and most vigorously targeting for my Dynasty League teams. In fact, Julian Edelman is the proof point for the right Dynasty League roster construction philosophy. The fantasy analysts I cited earlier and all the Dynasty analysts that I follow on social media, the ones I respect the most, we are the ones consolidating the Julian Edelman stocks in Dynasty Leagues. And the youth chasers can't get rid of Julian Edelman fast enough. I like Julian Edelman across all formats. I'm targeting Julian Edelman in the third round of redraft leagues, and I'm trying to get my hands on him wherever possible in Dynasty Leagues because 
In 2013, Julian Edelman posted over 100 receptions. He was on pace for over 100 receptions in 2014 and 2015 before he missed time with injuries. Now, the injuries are a concern. Both Julian Edelman and Danny Amendola underwent offseason knee and foot surgeries. So the starting receivers on New England are coming into the season rehabbing rather than working on their craft, which is a concern. But Julian Edelman is the number one wide receiver on a high-efficiency offense. It's really that simple. You don't need to overthink Julian Edelman, just like you shouldn't be overthinking Keenan Allen. You shouldn't be overthinking Doug Baldwin if there's a lot of volume there. If they're the entrenched number one receiver and there's going to be a lot of volume and their quarterbacks are accurate, you need to try to acquire those wide receivers. It's really easy. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can just be easy. Julian Edelman is easy. And we talked earlier about the idea of stashing players on your taxi squad. The reason why I object to stashing running backs like Keith Marshall and Paul Perkins on my dynasty taxi squads is because I would prefer to use those precious roster spots for wide receivers with tremendous upside like Malcolm Mitchell. If I'm going to draft a player with a close to 0% chance of winning a starting job during the preseason, you're better off drafting someone like Malcolm Mitchell than you are someone like Keith Marshall. I mean, you're talking about one of the greatest quarterbacks in history throwing a Julian Edelman. And I think a lot of people just sort of project theories on older quarterbacks. They may feel like they're out of gas or whatever it is. But a couple things about Tom Brady. I realize Tom Brady is 38 years old. But believe it or not, Tom Brady had a career year in 2015. His 36 touchdowns were a tie with 2010 for the third most touchdowns he's ever thrown in his entire career. In addition to that, the pass attempts that he threw in 2015, that was the third most he's ever thrown in his entire career. So if people feel like Tom Brady's going to get away from passing or he's going downhill, he's not because his numbers are still elite. 36 touchdowns seven interceptions. So when you look at Julian Edelman, who again, he's becoming an older player in this league, but we talked about being discerning about age. Julian Edelman is one of those guys who is going to get a ton of work. So I don't know why anybody would be fearful of owning him. In 2014, 134 targets. 2013, 151 targets. 2015, only played nine games, had 88 targets. So he would have certainly exceeded 100 targets once again. So Julian Edelman is a great bet to exceed 100 targets and, yeah, potentially get into that 100 catch range once again. So if people are trying to sell off Julian Edelman – There's no potential about it. The reason why people are selling Julian Edelman is because he just turned 30. The magic number is 3-0. And if you're in a dynasty league and you're holding on to a 30-year-old receiver, you're doing something wrong according to the youth chasers. And don't forget the recency bias. In 2014, Edelman only played 14 games. In 2015, Edelman only played nine games. So people are going to play that injury narrative. But Edelman's proven that he's a gritty player, and injuries are going to come with players like this. Oh, you don't like the word gritty in terms of a white wide receiver? There we go. Really just call the little white receiver gritty? Did you just do that to me? You know, as where there's smoke, there's fire wasn't enough for you today. Oh, this is this is torturous. I apologize. You know what? I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that to the white wide receiver. But, you know, he's the first guy to show up. Last guy to leave. Hard worker. (laughs) I got his nose in the playbook. (laughs) Team leader. He's a real spark plug out there. (laughs) That is the perception of the New England receiving core, isn't it, though? Oh, it is. They specialize in the little white wide receiver. (laughs) They have LWWRs. That's the position. That's the acronym for the position in New England, LWWR. Right. It's conceivable this season they start three white receivers and three receiver sets. Chris Hogan at X, Edelman at Z, and Amendola at Y. When was the last time an NFL team had an all-white three-receiver set? Okay, look, I don't know, but I will say this. We can look at Green Bay. They're one Randall Cobb injury away from having three white wide receivers on the field. But if you closed your eyes and you just listened to the telecast, you would think (laughs) Randall Cobb was white. (laughs) If we were at the Hunger Games and they were announcing names, Randall, 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 Cobb, Cobb, 
you would expect a white man in a bow tie to raise his hand when they read the name Randall Cobb. It does right. sound like a white person, even though he's not. Uh, Clearly, he's not. Clearly. Clearly. So while the New England Patriots will be starting three white wide receivers in three receiver sets, only two of them will be little, number one, and only one of them will actually look like Wes Welker. That's one of the things I object to about Julian Edelman. They see that he's 30. They remember how the Wes Welker career ended very quickly. Wes Welker was a WR1 in fantasy, and then two years later, he was out of the league. And now that Julian Edelman plays the Wes Welker position in the Patriots offense, Julian Edelman is viewed as just another Wes Welker small white receiver for the Patriots. But that is missing the point. Julian Edelman is nothing like Wes Welker athletically. Julian Edelman is faster. Julian Edelman has significantly more burst and Julian Edelman has high-end agility. Julian Edelman has a 116.2 80th percentile Spark X score. The problem with Wes Welker is the moment he aged out of his prime, what was baseline bare minimum level of athleticism to win on the football field dropped below that baseline and he could no longer be productive. Julian Edelman can lose burst as he ages and still be an effective slot flanker in the NFL out to age 34, 35, something that Wes Welker could not do. That's why on this show we talk about how to be discerning about how players age. Danny Amendola is absolutely Wes Welker 2.0. On playerprofile.com, they have very similar athletic profiles. Julian Edelman and Wes Welker look nothing alike on playerprofile.com. And Chris Hogan looks even less like Wes Welker than Julian Edelman. Chris Hogan is actually big. He's not even little. So you can't even hit Chris Hogan with the LWWR label. Chris Hogan is 6'1", 220. What? He has a 102.776 percentile height adjusted speed score on playerprofile.com. Above average burst and above average agility. He has a 10, 10, 67th percentile catch radius and a 99th percentile spark X score. He's big and he's explosive. He's about the furthest thing you can find from Wes Welker. The only thing they have in common is the fact that they are both white. And that's where the similarities end. That's why New England is going to be playing Chris Hogan at the X receiver position in 2016, a position and a role that Wes Welker could never play. And the way New England deploys their X receiver is interesting. At first, you might say, wow, Chris Hogan's going to play X receiver X, the featured position in the West Coast offense X, X, X slow down. The X receiver is not necessarily the featured position in the West Coast offense. Jerry Rice played flanker. John Taylor played X. John Taylor was not the featured receiver on the San Francisco 49ers. And Chris Hogan will not be the featured receiver on the New England Patriots. That will be Julian Edelman as long as he's wearing a Patriots jersey. I like Chris Hogan, but his ADP continues to climb. He's now crossed the slot 150 threshold in redraft leagues on my fantasy league. He's now going at pick 144.3. So I believe Chris Hogan is being valued fairly across fantasy formats because New England does not feature the X receiver. They haven't featured an X receiver since Randy Moss. And if you think about the target totem pole in the Patriots passing game, it goes Rob Gronkowski, number one, Julian Edelman, number two, Deion Lewis, number three. Remember Le'Veon Bell crowds out receivers in the passing game? That's true. He just doesn't crowd out Antonio Brown. Deion Lewis absolutely crowds out receivers not named Julian Edelman. Some of the passes that would be going to Chris Hogan or Danny Amendola will be going to Deion Lewis when Deion Lewis is healthy. Then the question becomes, is the number four receiver in the passing game Martellus Bennett or Chris Hogan or Danny Amendola? So it's conceivable that the Patriots feature their second tight end and their Y slot receiver Danny Amendola more than they feature Chris Hogan. The Patriots could be the first offense in the history of the NFL in which the X receiver is technically the sixth receiver on the target totem pole. We've never seen that before because the Patriots do not operate a generic version of the West Coast offense. The Patriots are like the Golden State Warriors of the NFL. And like the Golden State Warriors realized, oh, wait. 
it's more efficient for us to shoot threes than shoot twos. The Patriots, in a number of games last season, realized it's more efficient for us to throw than run. There are games in which the New England Patriots treat the run play like a gadget play. And to take this parallel a step further, the Golden State Warriors also realized, oh, wait, we're more efficient on both the defensive and offensive side when we don't play a center. For decades, the center was the centerpiece of an NBA franchise. And the Golden State Warriors told you this past season, never mind, we don't need a center. In fact, our lineup of death, our most effective lineup, doesn't have a center. We're starting Draymond Green, a forward at the center position, because it gives us the best chance to win. And that's what the Patriots are realizing. They're realizing that the back shoulder fade to the X receiver is the equivalent of a center shooting a hook shot. It's low percentage. The Patriots are clinically identifying the high percentage throws in the offense and zeroing in on those opportunities. And that marginalizes the X receiver. That renders the X receiver in the Patriots offense a decoy. That's what Brandon LaFell has been in New England, a decoy. So if Chris Hogan starts at the X receiver position, he's not guaranteed volume like most other X receivers. I know and you know and many fans of the Patriots know and many fans of advanced metrics know that Chris Hogan will be the starting split end X receiver for the New England Patriots in 2016. But the beat reporters that follow the Patriots have yet to figure this out. They're still reporting that Aaron Dobson projects to be the starting X receiver. And that's hilarious. The fact that a beat reporter believes that Aaron Dobson can go through the entire preseason and retain his grip on the split end X receiver position that he played as a figurehead during OTAs is laughable because Aaron Dobson has never been good. We talk about this exercise all the time. In a vacuum, if we're trying to determine whether or not a player is hashtag good in a vacuum, are you good or are you bad? Well, answer this question. Have you ever been good back through time? Let's start there. That sounds like a fair place to start. Have you ever been good? And the answer with Aaron Dobson is definitively no. He's never posted more than 700 receiving yards going back to four years at Marshall. Let's do a rewind sound effect. Aaron Dobson has never posted more than 700 receiving yards. Aaron Dobson personifies the film grinder fallacy that one route provides significant information about a player's ability. It does not. One of the reasons why the Patriots drafted Aaron Dobson is because Aaron Dobson's highlight reel includes one of the most impressive catches in the history of college football. Are you familiar with this catch, Nate? I'm not. Aaron Dobson's running down the sidelines and he makes a one-handed 40-yard catch in the back corner of the end zone in full stride. Mm. The footage is grainy, but the play is magnificent. He's 6'3", 210, long arms, runs a 4'4", a 113.1 height-adjusted speed score, 93rd percentile. Wow, right? Wow. An exciting athletic specimen that isn't a particularly good football player, yet that player is capable of singular moments of athletic brilliance, just like Cody Latimer is capable of singular moments of athletic brilliance. But Cody Latimer has never been consistent. His resume going all the way back to his time at Indiana was underwhelming. He capped out at a 27.4% 40th percentile college dominator rating. And Cody Latimer, like Aaron Dobson, had a 112.2 93rd percentile height adjusted speed score. Yet Cody Latimer and Aaron Dobson underperformed their athleticism at the college level. One of the great red flags are the phenomenal athletes that aren't able to put it together on a college football field. That's one of the reasons why I'm not worried about Sammy Coates encroaching on Antonio Brown's target share because Sammy Coates has a 100th percentile Spark X score and a below 50th percentile college dominator rating. Go look at all the wide receivers with the best Spark scores and below average college dominator ratings. It's a funny list. On the other hand, you have a wide receiver like Malcolm Mitchell. Malcolm Mitchell is someone you should be drafting in the second round of Dynasty rookie drafts because Malcolm 
Malcolm Mitchell does not project as the Patriots' future X receiver. He projects as the Patriots' future Z. Malcolm Mitchell's role in the Patriots' offense will be a featured one if anything happens to Julian Edelman. That's why I'm drafting Malcolm Mitchell, because his ceiling is as high as almost any receiver in the 2016 draft class. And you might say, well, I went to playerprofiler.com and Malcolm Mitchell does run a 4-4-5-40, but that was only 78th percentile. From his 40 time to his burst score to his agility score on playerprofiler.com, he has no workout metrics above the 80th percentile. So he's not a great athlete. And he didn't break out at Georgia until age 22, 13th percentile breakout age. Why should I like Malcolm Mitchell? Because not only does Malcolm Mitchell project to be the Patriots' future flanker Z target hog. But at Georgia, before he tore his ACL, as a freshman, he posted 45 receptions for 665 yards and four touchdowns in only 11 games as a true freshman. There are similarities between Malcolm Mitchell and Josh Doxson. Josh Doxson's career was derailed by a last year transferring from Wyoming to TCU. Malcolm Mitchell, like Josh Doxson, flashed as a true freshman, and then his college career was derailed. And then in their senior seasons, both Malcolm Mitchell and Josh Doxson were prolific producers. And you might say, what? Malcolm Mitchell only posted 865 yards his senior year. That's not prolific. Oh, but it was. It was because the Georgia Bulldogs didn't even reach 2,500 pass yards in all of 2015. Think about that. They went through three quarterbacks, Grayson Lambert, Bryce Ramsey, and Phaeton Bauta. Who the hell is that? Sure, I pronounced it incorrectly. We talk about college. Do- we talk about college domination. How much did your production exceed the other receivers in that passing game? Well, get this. Malcolm Mitchell posted 58 catches for 865 yards. The next most receiving yards, the second option in that passing game, posted a mere 35 receptions for 379 yards. Think about that. Malcolm Mitchell more than doubled the receiving yards of the next receiver on the target totem pole. That is college dominance. And that's what Malcolm Mitchell is capable of when healthy. And at six foot, 198 pounds, with average athleticism and exceptional college production, imagine, Nate, Malcolm Mitchell looks a lot like Jeremy Macklin. Nate, what if I told you that Jeremy Macklin would be the featured receiver in the Patriots' offense? Would that interest you at all? You have to try to win and win the right way. Did you lower the camera so you would look taller? What? No, man. I just want you to get like the full spectrum of me. So you are coordinated enough to grab one microphone with your left hand and another microphone with your right hand? The time chart, history of Jewish civilization. Oh, wow. Yes. It is. From the origins of the religion through the JCC of today. And it was like a dagger. Hey, man, where's Aaron Hernandez on the website, bro? He went to jail before I started player profile. Oh, really? Fuck. All right. And it was like a dagger. Chad Parsons, who we're trying to get on the show, he knows that it's all in good fun. We view this through a professional wrestling lens. We would love to have him on. And then right after that, I'm going to just eviscerate him because I have a microphone and a show. And I can say whatever I want. Fuck. Been to multiple Modest Yahoo concerts. Uh, they just go on their podcast and search for hashtag Dynasty Trades, and they just talk about Dynasty Trades all day. <laughs> you know, people do that. You know that, right? No, so I don't listen to any other shows, but I believe that they they do do that. I didn't know that anybody envisioned me as a small person. This was the breaking news of the off season that you're actually tall. 
And I'm not trying to stereotype here, but these guys were animals. Should have been in cages. That was a dead fish that you just <laughs> laid on my lap. Every Mormon player I played in that league was Bill Lambeer. All of them. It was too contrived of a segue. Right. It was horrible. I, I cringe having this flashback. Fuck. Because it's a low percentage throw, and so they don't believe it's an efficient use of a pass attempt. They brought in LaFell specifically to be the decoy, to be the space holder. Sure. He might have been a cardboard cutout, and they realized, wow, he was replacement level cardboard cutout wide receiver in his first year in New England. And then in his second year in New England, he was below replacement. He was worse than a cardboard cutout. Fuck. Have you ever seen an NFL team in three receiver sets have all white receivers? In New England, they don't go three wide. They go three white. Randall? Randall Cobb? I mean, come on. I think perception is that Chris Hogan's 5'10", 192 pounds. Fuck. Five, four, three, two, one. Need to wear real basketball shoes when you play against Matt Kelly. Check ball, I guess. I have cupcakes all over my recording studio. Look at this. The Jewish people should own the sport of basketball. (laughs) The fact that he played in socks is just too much. It crushed my soul. Yeah, oh yeah. I've been really bad. I feel like he's Bobby Fischer playing chess against himself. Uh, I mean, Edelman is a proof point. He is the guy that the youth chasers are all trying to get rid of, and people like us are all trying to acquire. Fuck. God, I didn't take any breaths in, in some places. Fuck. All of you should be going to playerprofiler.com forward slash guides. Where's a guide? Uh-oh. Do I even know the name URL of my own? <laughs> It's guides. Thankfully. Woo. Oh, it's guides. <sighs> that was almost embarrassing. Page can't be displayed, mansion. <laughs> Wrong URL. <laughs> can't find it on my own. <laughs>